0: From 1991 to 2010, most of the members of the Jim Hare family spent a summer week's vacation together at the McVoy Cottage in Pentwater, Michigan, on the beaches of Lake uh, Michigan. The unplugged week was saturated with activities like sunbathing, playing beach volleyball, reading, eating lots of junk food, and taking naps. And everyone really liked the time spent around the campfire every night, telling and retelling the same old stories. In fact, some of our family's stories are so time-worn and predictable that they became abbreviated. Uh, the mere mention of a phrase or even a single word could bring a rousing response from the family, like, let's walk to the house, or share pentwater, water, or even shorter yet, spores. Now, while it served us well, our dysfunctional storytelling created a real problem for the in-laws marrying into the family because they just didn't understand the shorthand. Well, for the last 2,000 years, Christ's family, the church, has been telling and retelling the world's most famous and powerful story. But my fear is that at times we've reduced the narrative to a few short phrases or even a, a single word that mean little to the people not yet in our family. Words like redemption or atonement or wrath or judgment. We talk in an abbreviated religious code, and folks just don't understand our shorthand. And so every year on Easter weekend, we retell the story of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection in language that is hopefully easy to understand. And part of the joy and the power that Christ followers have in the Easter story lies in this very simple repetition coming back to the same central truths uh, that we'll be reminded of today. Now, as Tony shared, for the last seven weeks of Lent, we've been reading and reflecting on the Gospel of Mark in a series of messages that we've called A 40-Day Adventure Following the Radical Jesus. And this morning, as we conclude this series, we're going to discover that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God was announcing that everything has changed. Let's pray together. Good morning, Lord. We just say thank you for who you are and all you've done. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, we honor your name. And we join with the billions of Christ followers all around the globe this morning, worshiping you, celebrating the powerful Easter story. Thank you for your great unending love for all people everywhere, every race, creed, and culture. We thank you that you died upon the cross for our sin and that on the third day, you rose to make us right with you. Thank you for inaugurating your kingdom, your rule and your reign, for setting things to right. We ask that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, right here today in our lives, in this campus, in this room, and right next door where our vineyard kids are learning about the power of the resurrection as well. Come, Lord, and bring your rule and your reign in our families, in our church, in our communities, those that are represented here today. Come through the Holy Spirit, whom we welcome among us in your name. Amen. One of the more powerful or memorable Jim Hare family narratives is the spore story. Now, its origin was Mystery Night. That's around the campfire where it's a tradition to have share a mystery, a short story, or a riddle for the audience to solve. And on this particular night, I was uh, sharing, and I shared a, an intriguing drama about an otherwise healthy woman who mysteriously died. The object was to discover the cause of her passing. Well, my nephew Blaine was the clever sleuth who discerned uh, the method. As a microbiologist, her husband, um, in a fit of jealousy, had sprinkled her favorite book with deadly but undetectable spores, after which ingesting as she licked her fingers to turn the pages killed her now unbeknownst to the family at the uh, at this time around the campfire, I was making the whole thing up as I went, and so you know how it is when you tell one lie after another, it gets really complicated. Well, the story got much more complicated and very confusing as it unfolded, hence some of its enduring controversy and legacy in the Hare family. In contrast, the Easter story is simple, compelling, and straightforward, never changing, entirely true. What we know for certainty comes in the four Gospels in the New Testament, the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the importance that these four writers placed upon the story can be understood by the relative space that they occupy in their brief accounts. Nearly one-third of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, one-fourth of Luke, and nearly one-half the Gospel of John are devoted to the Passion Week, the last seven days of Jesus' life that stretch from Palm Sunday to Easter morning. Now, Mark's account is particularly riveting. As an eyewitness story, no doubt the material he got came firsthand from the Apostle Peter. He was his understudy. And in the 14th and 15th chapters of Mark, he relates in detail the events of the Passion of the Christ, Jesus' last meal with his disciples, his earnest prayers, his subsequent betrayal, his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trials, conviction, and sentencing, and then finally, in In brief language, his overwhelming suffering and agonizing death through crucifixion. And as gripping as the record of Jesus' death is, what happened after it is even more startling. If you have a Bible or your Bible app, you may want to open it to Mark's Gospel, the 16th chapter, where we're going to read the first eight verses, Mark's gripping account of the resurrection. Can follow along on the screen as well. Mark 16 verses 1 to 8. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene and Salome and Mary the mother of James went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way there, they were asking each other, "Who will roll away the stone, the stone for us? For to the entrance to the tomb, from the entrance to the tomb." But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, clothed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He's arisen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now, go and tell his disciples, including Peter, Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most astounding historical fact. And the fact of the resurrection lies at the heart of the Christian faith. N.T. Wright, one of the most influential and respected theologians and authors in the world today, says in his excellent book, The Challenge of Jesus, and I quote, there is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm At its heart, that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him to life again. The early Christians said over and over again exactly what we just read in Mark's Gospel. Three days after Jesus' burial, his execution and burial, he was raised to bodily life again. Now, they knew, as well as we know today, that things like that just don't happen. You know, when when people die, they stay dead. In, in first century Palestine, 21st century America, the wife in the spore story, still dead. Your parents, your family, your friends or loved ones that have passed away, still dead. And when Jesus died, his followers certainly weren't expecting him to come back to life. And yet they said loudly and clearly, that's exactly what happened. It wasn't that the women went to the wrong tomb. It wasn't that the thieves, the Jewish religious authorities, or the disciples removed or stole the body. It wasn't that Jesus swooned, where a nearly dead Jesus was resuscitated by the cool, damp environment of the tomb. No, the Romans knew how to kill people. It wasn't a corporate hallucination nor was it a grief-induced fantasy. It was for real. And it wasn't done in secret. In fact, the whole city of Jerusalem knew about it, and eventually uh, the entire Roman Empire learned. There were at least 15 specific references in the Bible to Jesus meeting people, talking with people, touching people, and even eating with people after. His resurrection. So standing squarely in the center of historical truth are the simple, compelling, and straightforward facts of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was compelled by this powerful Easter story that those early Christ followers scattered throughout all the known world proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God's kingdom. And the Holy Spirit's record of early church history, you can read that in the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, affirms that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the centerpiece of their message. 2,000 years later, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is still galvanizing the church all around the world into mission, because we love to tell the story, simple, Compelling, straightforward. So, just what does the resurrection mean? What are the implications of the story for us? I'd like to share this morning with you three, three simple, compelling, straightforward ways that Easter changes everything. The first is that our past can be totally forgiven. Now, the painful truth is that most of us vastly overrate how good we are in the eyes of God. In our public moments, we think, "Hey, I live a decent life. I work hard. I I try to treat people fairly. I'm generally honest. I vote, I volunteer, I coach my kids' teams, you know, I donate some money. Uh, I even buy Girl Scout cookies. What's the big deal?" But in our private moments, when our hearts are quieted down, the shades are closed, we know the big deal is that we think things, say things, and do stuff that is wrong. And the Bible calls this sin. Now, these choices to think and say and do uh, uh, make us a sinner. You just don't hear that word very often anymore today, do you? You know, it's just not terribly popular. It's a little too blunt. But the reality is that as sinners, we've really made a mess of things. We've Hurt a lot of people, even the ones we love. We've suffered through broken marriages, failed business relationships. We've wasted too much money. We've drank too much alcohol. We've consumed too much food. We're now addicted to the wrong things. We have fought and lied and cursed and broken the law. We've disobeyed the rules. We've ended up bitter and angry, resentful and unforgiving, and we even have held grudges. Now, others of us probably can't relate to living such a life, but if we were honest, then we would say, "Well, yeah, we've lived independence of God, and we've lived for our own selfish pleasure, and we've largely ignored the needs of others and everything in between and so now things are a mess; some of us feel guilty, some of us feel ashamed we 're stuck with the consequences of our poor choices." And we suspect that God is probably angry with us. He's upset, probably wants nothing to do with us. Well, the resurrection is God's provision to forgive our past and give us a brand new start. The Apostle Paul, one of the preeminent figures in the early church, communicated this powerful truth in these words in his letter to the church at Rome, the fourth chapter, the 25th verse. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised from the dead to make us right with God. In the resurrection, it's as if God said, okay, in Jesus, I'll die for all the sins of the entire world to pay for everything that has been or ever will be done wrong. Jesus will pay the price that you should have paid. Through the cross and resurrection, God says, I'll make it possible for all people everywhere to experience complete forgiveness and to be made brand new. Freedom from their sinful past. I'll change everything. God says, I'll forgive uh, your sin and I will not hold them against you. I'll let you start over as a brand new person and have a brand new life as you come into my kingdom. Now that is good news. So, friends, I want to put this as simply as I possibly can. Because Jesus died and rose again, your sinful, selfish past can be totally, completely forgiven. No strings attached. Jesus doesn't put a coat of paint or perfume over our otherwise broken-down, complicated, messed-up life. He gives us a brand-new life as we turn from sin and selfishness and we trust Him. And we then stand before God as His daughter, as His son, just as if we'd never, ever sinned. God is not holding your sinful past against you, nor will He ever charge you for the sins you commit in the future. The things you say and do and think that are wrong, He'll not hold them against you. He gives us a brand new identity as His son, as His daughter. Forever forgiven, forever free, forever made new. Let me share with you my brief story. I was raised by very devout, authentic Christian parents right here in Peoria. Because my father was a lay pastor in our uh, church tradition, all the pastors were lay, uh, uh, the church attendance was very high uh, every Sunday, every Wednesday. I grew up hearing the Easter story. But while I would have told you that I acknowledged it as the historical truth, I never surrendered to its power or its call or claim on my life. I never gave my life to Jesus until I went to the University of Illinois in 1974 to study landscape architecture when as a freshman I began to experience what I now know was both the awareness of and conviction of sin. See, I was caught between trying to get an education on one hand and maintaining a sinful social life on the other and I was miserably guilty. I was also influenced by my Christian roommate. His name was Bob, who I thought was just weird. He might have been, but he had something that I didn't have, and that was peace. We had many late-night conversations, and so in part due to his influence, in on the night of Tuesday, October 29th, 1974, Room 413, Babcock Hall, Pennsylvania Avenue Residence Halls, Bob was long asleep. I slipped out of my bed about 10:30 that night. And I knelt down and I prayed sincerely for probably the first time in my life, a very simple prayer that went something like this, as far as I can remember. Jesus, if you're real, please come into my life. At that moment, I felt the weight of a thousand tons lift off of my life. As I later learned at that time that Jesus forgave my sin, freed me from its guilt and made me So friends, at the close of this message today, I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer, inviting Jesus to come into your life and give you a brand new start. Because your past can be forgiven, and you don't have to carry your sin around with you any longer. The second way that Jesus' uh, Easter changes everything is this. Your present can be hopeful. The sad truth is that many people, even after surrendering to Jesus, still continue to live defeated and hopeless lives. In many cases, I I find out that no one's actually ever told them the news that I'm about to share with you, so listen closely. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to God the Father in heaven. He then received the gift of the Holy Spirit and sent him to the earth on the day of Pentecost. You can read Uh, an account of that in the New Testament book of Acts, the second chapter, where the technical language is that the Holy Spirit was poured out like water on the earth. Now, since that day, when you begin a relationship with Jesus uh, through surrendering your life to him, God comes to live inside of you through the personal and powerful presence of himself through the Holy Spirit. That is, he comes to live in you right now. His personal, powerful, indwelling presence, and he comes to give you a hopeful life. God never imagined that we would try to live the Christian life on our own strength and willpower and resources. You know, through gritting our teeth, sheer willpower and determination, trying to do better tomorrow than we did today. No, he comes to live in us. In the life we now live, we can live through the power of his indwelling holy spirit fills us with hope and here's how the Bible describes that promise in the book of Peter first Peter one verse three because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been born again into a life filled with hope. Well what kind of hope you might ask well, the hope of experiencing god's favor his wholeness and healing and freedom and and well-being in every aspect of your life. The hope of receiving uh, forgiveness and freedom from sin's suffocating grip. You are no longer sin's slave. The hope of having God's peace and joy, regardless of the difficult circumstances and the challenging things that you face. The hope of being able to love and forgive other people and even extend mercy because you have received God's mercy. The hope of actually expecting breakthroughs of his power in your life as you pray. It's what Jesus once described in John 10.10 when he framed his desire for his followers with this language. The thief or Satan's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. Now, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit empowering us to live the rich and satisfying life that Jesus said he wants you to live is not to be confused with the American dream. That our present can be hopeful is no guarantee that all of our problems will disappear or that we'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. No, it would be Naive and unrealistic to even suggest such a thing. We still live in a broken, fallen world. We'll face difficult circumstances and challenges to our faith until Christ's kingdom comes in fullness at the end of this present evil age when Jesus comes a second time. In the meantime, he does desire that our lives be filled up with hope right now. Why is that? Because the blessings of the future age that we'll receive in full have broken into the present in His death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was announcing that the new day had already begun. And in that sense, friends, followers of Christ aren't waiting for anything. It's already happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. The new age is beginning to dawn. The language of the, of the prophets in the, in the Bible is that it's the kingdom age, the, the age to come is already here, and followers of Christ can enter into that hope. Jesus desires for us to live a life full of hope right now, and we can. we are his children. We belong to God. We matter to God, and we can trust God to lead us, protect us, provide for us. Now the Apostle Paul, Describes this new hopeful life as God's children this way in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. He says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. He goes on in, in, in verse 31 and says, If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. We'll sing that song today, that his love never fails. So friends, our present can be hopeful, as we've read, because we are heirs of God. Because if God is for us, no one can stand against it. Because nothing can separate us from His love, because overwhelming victory is ours now through Christ. Fulfilled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, our lives can be saturated with His fruit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness. It matters not how difficult our circumstances are or how many challenges there might be to our faith. It matters not whether we're an engineer or an architect or a student or a teacher, a computer technician, an administrative assistant, uh, work in the, in the trades or in retail sales or in food service, or you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, or you're now retired. It matters not whether you're young or old, rich or poor. It matters not if you're male or female. It matters not your race. It matters not your level of education, your socioeconomic status, the kind of clothes you wear or the color of your hair, or how many piercings you might have. It matters not Right now, our life can be hopeful. The third simple, compelling, and straightforward way that Easter changes everything is this. Our future can be secure. Now, by God's grace, my wife Tina and I have been relatively healthy for most of our adult lives, um, our 57 years. That's 56 for me. For the first three uh, years, uh, three decades of our married and in childbearing and raising years, apart from a few minor issues, we seldom had to go to the doctor or hospital. By God's grace, and quite honestly, we somehow imagined that growing older and having to deal with an aging body was something that you know others would face, but not us. What were we thinking? (laughs) But over the last six years, as we've uh, battled uh, uterine cancer, a hernia. wisdom teeth extraction, several root canals, high cholesterol, tinnitus, and diminishing eyesight, we both feel the effects of aging, and we have longed for a new body in ways that we've never dreamed. Bring it on, Lord. Sooner than later. Well, not exactly, but. (laughs) But friends, the resurrection is God's pledge that all of his followers will receive a glorified body. Our earnest longings, if you don't have them now, you will someday, our earnest longings to shake free from the curse of aging and disease and sickness and even death will be realized in our future resurrection from the dead and our continued existence in our body. You see, the great hope of the Christian faith is not that we die and go to heaven someday. That's great. But the hope is that at the end of the age, our body, like Jesus' body, will be resurrected and changed. The Bible describes it this way. in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of an eye when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. Our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. When our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, then this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And so, friends, at the end of this present evil age, every person who fully follows Jesus, the radical Jesus, will be raised from the dead and reunited with the soul spirit, and our bodies will be glorified and changed, and we will never die. That is shouting ground. The body we receive will be a resurrected body, just like the one Jesus had on that first Easter morning. It's a real body. It was not a ghost, and yet it was not bound by space or time. Uh, It will never grow old, never grow weary, never get sick, never need strength. We shall be as he is. and Then Jesus will set the entire creation to right as he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible tells us that God will then live among us as his people and we, the followers of the radical Jesus, will rule and reign with him just as he intended when the whole story began. In this sense, our future can be secure. So Easter changes everything. Our past can be forgiven. Our present can be hopeful. Our future can be secure. And friends, today, Wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, God is inviting you to fully follow the radical Jesus. Where will the radical Jesus take you, you might ask? Well, we don't fully know. But we have to be willing to take the risk. The risk is is this. You trust Jesus' promise. The radical Jesus said this. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it and save it. And I told you earlier at the conclusion of my message, I was just going to invite you to pray with me. So here's what we're going to do. You know, one of the simplest and best ways to connect with God is to just talk to him and direct your thoughts to him. That's called prayer. And so I'm going to invite you just to talk to God and express your desire for a new or deeper relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And you can just agree with the words that I say in your heart as we pray. Let's do that. Jesus, we thank you for the powerful truth of the Easter story. Thank you that you came to earth, fully man, fully god. You lived a sinless life and you died upon the cross for that sin. And and you were raised to to life from the tomb to make us right with you. And Lord, all of us today, we, we admit our our sin and our need of your forgiveness. We we pray that uh, you would Extend mercy and and, and completely forgive our past and make us brand new. We surrender to you for the first time or the thousandth time. We ask you, Lord, to give us your brand new life to fill us now with your Holy Spirit and with hope for living. And it's in your powerful name that we pray.